If you have uh, your Bibles ready, we'll be in Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read the first six verses. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison and as those in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since also you are also in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man can do to me. Will you pray with me? Fathers, we gather here this morning. I just want to thank you that you do not leave your people. You never leave. You never forsake. And God, that really touches on one of the themes that we were dealing with in Sunday school and just your presence with your people and, and how no matter what circumstances and trials we find ourselves in, we can confidently say that you are our help, that you are a faithful God, that we are not alone when we face the, the uh, challenges of life and we're hemmed in on one side by uh, a problem that seems to not go away and we're, we're hemmed in on the other side by something that, that seems like it's set to destroy us. But God, you are always working deliverance for your people. And so we praise and thank your name for that. But God, we recognize that one of the things that, that causes the fear and anxiety that causes us sometimes to feel like we're hemmed in by the Red Sea with the Egyptians breathing down our necks is just our health. And God, so many of our, our people, Lord, our, our, uh, the sheep of this flock have been uh, touched by illness, God, and, and some of it is severe, some of it is long-term chronic disease. Some of it has just been, you know, seasonal illnesses, God, just continuing to run their course through the homes, through the kids and through the parents. And God, there's just been a lot of illness and that always breaks us down and causes us to feel weak and weary. God, there are emotional problems that we face, stresses in our lives, anxieties, God, that seem to, uh, to desire to destroy us. And they, God, they often cause us to despair and we, we feel hopeless. But it's in those helpless situations that you demonstrate your power by delivering your people. And so we confidently ask, oh God, that you would deliver yet again, that you would show your might and your power and your strength, that you would demonstrate the compassion that you had for Israel when you said, I'm not going to lead them to war because they're not ready for that. They can't, they, they won't deal with that. There will be a destructive force in their lives. And so you delivered them through the waters. God, I pray that you would work just as, as uh, prominently in our lives, that you would show that compassion to us as we face our sicknesses and our diseases, God, and the constant stresses and anxieties and fears that we face, God, that you would um, come and, and comfort and be with us. God, we learned that you're not the God on the outside. You're not just out there as a pillar of fire or a pillar of cloud, but God, you are the, the indwelling God. You have moved nearer to us through Christ, through His death and, and resurrection. God, You now live in us through the Holy Spirit and You speak to us through Your Word. And we have a better presence than Israel. And God, help our hearts to be comforted with that, to be encouraged with that, to be strengthened by that this morning as we bring all of our cares, all of our problems, all of our distress to You. God, let us lay it down at the feet of a God who always works all things for His glory 
and for the good of His people. And let us take comfort in that and let us praise with hearts that are just absolutely, uh, resolutely trusting in that promise. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's have our ushers come forward at this time. As they're coming, I just wanted to remind you to be in continued prayer for Josh Hutchins and for his wife in Malawi. We just saw an update yesterday on, on Facebook uh, with them as they had just uh, helped and been instrumental in starting a youth program at one of the churches that they're ministering to. So just pray for that specifically, but pray for Josh uh, and his wife. So let's pray this morning. Lord, we come to you and we are grateful that we have the gospel, that we have the, the tr- good news about the righteousness of Christ that can be ours, uh, not by our works, but as a gift through your grace and received by faith. Lord, we come in faith today recognizing that we all fall short in many, many different ways and that our only hope of being with you, of knowing you, of having a relationship with you, and our only hope of heaven is the righteousness of Christ that is given as a gift. God, we know that there are many, many around the world who don't know that good news. They're seeking to establish their own righteousness by some standard of morality, and uh, we pray that you would bless us, that we would be generous givers, that that the message of your free grace and of justification by faith might be proclaimed in Malawi and in China and, and all over the world. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We'll be in the book of Ephesians once more, Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll be moving on to verses 3 uh, through 6. Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. I'll begin reading it at verse 1 just to get the context here. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God has come upon the sons of disobedience. We're going to be talking about a subject this morning and dealing with sexual immorality uh, that is is something of a challenge for us. It's a challenge in various ways. It's a challenge because it's an awkward conversation to have. It's an awkward thing to talk about uh, sometimes. Uh, It's also a challenge because we live in a culture that is saturated with sexual immorality. And so there's a, a, a way in which this word comes against all of us in, in some very clear uh, ways. And so we need to uh, heed this word this morning. We pray that God would use it to bring conviction where that is, is needed uh, and to encourage us in a greater level of faithfulness. We see in, in our, our culture is a culture that, sex, or that is saturated with sexual immorality, and we as the church are to be a place where there's not even a hint of it, where it is not even named among us. We are called, in other words, to be radically different from the culture 
around us. Now, I just want to jump in and, and, and get to work right away. First of all, we see that this is sexual immorality. Uh, that word is the word pornea, uh, which obviously we get, you know, like pornography from, from that word. Uh, and it's a word that carries the idea of any kind, really, of sexual activity that is outside of the bounds that God has given us in Scripture and through His His creation. In the strictest sense, this word is a word that, that spoke directly to fornication or sex outside the bounds of marriage, uh, but it came to be a, a word that was used in the Bible and in culture that was just kind of a broad general word for, for any kind of deviation from God's uh, plan for sexuality. So it would include, I think, and it does in, in various places in the Bible, include things like pornography, homosexuality, adultery, even lust. Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount that that, I think, would be uh, a sin of, of pornea, of, of, of sexual immorality. Uh, what we need to understand, though, is that this word does not include sex within marriage. Unfortunately, at times in the church, Sex itself is treated as if it were some kind of bad thing. Uh, and we need to dispel that, I, I, that, that altogether. Uh, this shows itself, I think, sometimes in the way that we are afraid to talk about it in, in, in places that are even uh, would be appropriate settings and times. And also, I think it's displayed uh, in, in the way that we deal with our, our children, our fear of talking about this with, with our, our children. I think sometimes in seeking to guard our children, we often, we often fail to have the kind of ongoing conversation we ought to have with them. Instead, I think a lot of times we simply uh, signal to them that this is something that's bad, something that they shouldn't do, and something they shouldn't talk about, but this really just leaves them in, in the dark uh, about the matter with a general attitude that says, I know I'm not supposed to like this. I know this isn't supposed to be good. And I think really what this does is ultimately just set them up for failure because it fail, fails to clearly communicate to them that sex is the good and beautiful gift that God has given to us to be enjoyed, but to be enjoyed in the right way. And so we just give them and, and impose on them sort of a general, it's bad, don't do it, don't talk about it. And, and we don't, in a positive way, encourage them to think about sexuality in a biblical and a, in a healthy way. So just imagine... Uh, if you taught your children about sexuality in the same way as, or, or if you taught them how to drive in the same way that you teach them about sexuality, that would be a, a neat experience, wouldn't it? If we adopted the same approach to, to driving as we do how we teach them about sexuality, when they're young, we constantly tell them, uh, I better never catch you in the driver's seat. Driving is bad, it's dangerous, and you could really hurt yourself. And then one day they, they get old enough to drive and we say to ourselves, well, I guess I can't prevent it any longer. They're at the driving age, you know, and uh, so without any instruction, we, we don't talk about it. We just leave the, the, the uh, keys to the car on the counter and I don't want to talk to them about it. I don't want to deal with it, but, but I know they're going to be driving. And so uh, th there are the keys. Well, that, that's foolish, right? We're setting them up for disaster. We're setting them up for, for failure. All they've ever heard about is how, how it's bad and dangerous, and they've received no 
positive instruction. You should teach your children that this is something that is a good gift from God and it's to be enjoyed, but it's to be enjoyed in the proper way. That's what we do when we're teaching them that, that about driving, right? This is good. It's fun. It's a, that, you know, uh, the car that you get to drive, all this is, is wonderful, but you need to make sure that you're licensed. You need to make sure that you're properly trained. And, and in those parameters, this is something that you can enjoy. And that's the approach I think we need. And we need that because God created sex. God gave us sex. It's good. And it's his design. Last week I said it was one of his kindnesses that he's, he's given to us. You know, when you look to, to scripture and you look back to the creation account, we understand that God made us male and female. He made us as sexual beings. And when he's done with all of creation, After each thing that he made, he says it's good. And then when he's done with all of creation, he says it is very good. That includes sex. Sex is very good. It's the very good creation of God. It's not something to be ashamed about or to act as if it's wrong in and of itself. We look to the other places in Scripture, we see this same idea. In the Song of Solomon, we have really an entire book devoted to the marital love, the marital intimate love of a husband and a wife. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's kind of foreign to us in the, in the way that it's written because it's a different culture, different setting. But it's a book about the married love of a husband and wife. It is God picturing this as a good thing and as something to be enjoyed. In the book of Proverbs, husbands are encouraged to enjoy sexual intimacy with their spouse as a good and right expression of their desire, as opposed to to fulfilling that desire in wrong ways. So Proverbs 5.15 says this. Some of you knew where I was going with this. Oh yeah, Proverbs 5. We skip that that when we're reading it with our children, right? Let's not read that one. Uh, But Proverbs 5.15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well, Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe, let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? So you see there, sex is good. Enjoy your spouse. God has given your spouse to you for that enjoyment. It's a good thing. It's a wonderful thing. Enjoy that. Don't enjoy that with other people. Don't don't enjoy that with someone who is not your spouse. Right? So it is a good thing that God has given us. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul commands us in the book of 1 Corinthians, uh, he urges us not to deprive each other of the joy of sexual intimacy. 1 Corinthians 7, 2 says, but because of temptation to sexual immorality, pornea, that's the same word in our text, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. The husband should should, should give to his wife her conjugal rights and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourself to, pr- to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. 
And so in a normal, healthy, functioning marriage, it should not be a sexless marriage. It should not be a marriage when husbands and wives are not coming together and where there is no intimacy. A marriage ordinarily should be a husband and wife coming together on a regular basis. He doesn't give us any kind of timetable. Men, you were hoping for maybe, you know, he'd say, say, uh, set it really high, but he doesn't do that. He just says, look, this ought to be a regular part of your life. We understand that there are some circumstances where there perhaps has been some abuse or something that has gone on in the history of that marriage and in that relationship that, that, that could uh, be sort of a, uh, a caveat to that, but this is under normal circumstances. God made sex. It's beautiful. It's a part of his good design. It's a kindness of God that we get to enjoy. And when it is enjoyed as it is meant to be, it is even better than the world can offer. And so we just need to understand that from, from the start. The second thing that we see, though, is that this is talking about sexual immorality. Uh, this is not talking about the right use of sexuality within the covenant and within the bounds of marriage. This is talking about sexual immorality. Look at verse 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And so this is what the command is. Uh, sexual immorality perverts God's design and it distorts his purpose. So it takes this good gift that God has given us, sexual immorality does, and it distorts, uh, it perverts his design and distorts his purpose. So, so we can imagine, right, if you had an artist who just uh, paints this, this masterpiece, right, a well-known artist, and he puts it, you know, this is just his top of the line, this is, this is his masterpiece, and then you take that and you, you take it outside and you say, well, you know, I need a backstop. I'm shooting arrows here and I, I need something to catch the arrows when I miss the target, right? We say, no, that's not what that's designed for. That's a, that, that artist created this to be something beautiful, to be something that's enjoyed, and you're misusing it and, and degrading it. That's what we're doing with sexual immorality. We, we are taking God's good gift really one of his, his, his best works in creation, right? Uh, and we are distorting. It's okay. Y'all got to laugh with me a little bit here, okay? Uh, it, it's, I, it's God's finest work of achievement, one of them. It's got to be up there, right? Amen? Come on. And, and, and we are distorting it and twisting it just like uh, in that illustration that, that I use. Now, two ways that, that sexual immorality distorts God's good design. First, it abuses the pleasure that is meant to bind two people together in in a marital union. It abuses the pleasure that is meant to bind two people together in marital union. See what it does. It seeks to take and get the pleasure of of the act of, of sexuality and disconnect it from any kind of commitment for the good of that person. Sex is meant to be the glue that binds us together in marriage. Sex is, is doing with our bodies, physically, what we have said with our words. We have covenanted together. We have pledged ourselves as one, to be united as one. We, that's what we're saying when we get married, right? In, in our vows, that they're no longer two, but they are one because of that covenant promise. Sex is, is the physical acting out of that reality. And that is what is meant to do. Sex 
creates a powerful mental and emotional bond between a couple. And ordinarily, when couples come together intimately with regularity, the bond of their relationship is much stronger. Well, what does sexual immorality do? How does it distort that? Well, it tries to get the pleasure out of sexuality without any kind of commitment there. It it seeks for the momentary physical pleasure with little or no commitment to the long-term well-being of that individual. You see, we're we're using people for pleasure. I I don't care about this person long term. I'm not at least I'm not committed to them for the rest of my life, better or worse or in all those things that we say when we're when we get married. I'm not really that concerned about them, but I want the pleasure. I want the enjoyment of this momentary act. And so we use people for pleasure with no or little commitment to them. Sexual immorality exalts pleasure above all else including the good of one another. The second is this. The second way that it distorts it is it is a distortion of the picture of a picture of the gospel. You know that sex is meant to teach us about God. God often uses physical things to teach us spiritual realities. That's what's going on as we've begun to observe the Lord's table on a monthly basis. What is that? God is using a physical thing something that is very near and dear to us, drinking and eating to teach us a spiritual reality. That is, we are dependent on the body and blood of Christ. We are dependent on his death for us. That's a physical act that is meant to teach us a spiritual reality about the gospel. Baptism is is another one, right? We're baptized, we're immersed. This is a physical act. We physically go into the water to show a spiritual reality. Sex is similar to those things. It is meant to teach us about God. It teaches us about the spiritual realities of the gospel. John Piper says this. He says the ultimate reason, though not the only reason, but the ultimate reason why we are sexual is to make God more deeply knowable. The language and imagery of sexuality are the most graphic and the most powerful that the Bible uses to describe the relationship between God and his people. Marriage is a picture of the gospel. Husbands and wives being united as one flesh is a picture of the way we are united with Jesus Christ. You see, we become one with Christ in a similar way or in an analogous way that a husband becomes one with his wife. There's a spiritual union that occurs which parallels the physical union that occurs within marriage. Sex is the physical picture of our of the union between a husband and a wife. It's the physical picture of that union. And the union between a husband and a wife is a picture of the believer's union with Jesus Christ. In the same way, in other words, that you and your spouse, when you're married, you become one. Ephesians 5 says, look, this is a picture of the gospel. We become one with Christ. It's a spiritual Reality. Well, sexual immorality then distorts that view of God. It takes that wonderful picture that God has given us, this powerful picture, and it twists it. it. It distorts it. When we engage in sexual behavior with someone with whom we are not truly united in the covenant of marriage, we are presenting a picture of God that is a love them and leave them kind of God. You see, the, the, the marriage uh, covenant is to be uh, a covenant for a lifetime, and it is to picture the kind of 
faithful love that Christ has for his bride, for the church. And so when, when we engage in this kind of sexual behavior with someone to whom we are not committed, we're, we're distorting that picture. We're saying God is a love them and leave them kind of God. We're presenting a picture that does not display his faithful love for his bride. Instead, we're presenting a picture of God that is a one night stand kind of God. God will not love you and leave you. God will not throw you away when he's done with you. God is the kind of God that will keep on loving you long after your beauty has faded. God is the kind of God that will not drop you because something better comes along. God <clears throat> is faithful to his people. Christ is faithful to his bride. And sex is meant to be a picture of that reality of our union with him. And our union with him is designed to be permanent so it distorts this wonderful picture that God has given us thirdly sexual immorality is a debasing sin I mean by that it is a sin that draws you in and it keeps taking you to lower and and lower points as you begin to give yourself over to it it takes you further and further down the road of Depravity, you typically cannot embrace sexual sin without it becoming more and more perverse and more and more twisted. This is why indulgence into pornography slowly becomes more and more deviant, right? It, it gets bizarre even and weird. It's because when you give yourself over to sexual immorality, like most sins, it begins to take you further and further down the road. Like an individual, a society that embraces sexual sin will become more and more perverse. And I think that's what we're seeing in our society uh, when, when, when we could just provide a long list of all the things that 50 or especially 100 years ago would have been unthinkable and now is just commonplace in our culture. And that's because we've taken this step by step. It's a debasing sin. It gets you here and then it takes you a step further and then it takes you a step further and further. That's why Paul uses this second word, but sexual immorality and all impurity. This word impurity is, is the word that's kind of a step further. Sexual immorality is just the general world, word for any kind of, uh, uh, of sexual behavior outside of God's design. But impurity is used of sexual sin that is especially deviant or perverse in its nature. It's not just your run-of-the-mill sexual sin. This is like down-the-road, twisted kind of stuff. So not only sexual immorality, but all impurity should not be named among you. He says this is also why Paul uses this word covetousness. And you might think, well, what does covetousness have to do with this? Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. And he even says or covetousness and in a way linking impurity with covetousness. And sometimes Paul does just lump a bunch of sins in, right? You've read Paul's epistles and he'll give a long litany. But, but the whole theme of this seems to be regarding sexual sin. But this word covetousness is a word that it can mean covetousness or greed for material things, but it can also be a kind of greed for sinful pleasure. And I think that's what he's saying here. He's saying sexual sin should not be part of, of what's going on in your church. Not only sexual sin, but any kind of impurity, these, these deep, more deviant forms of sexual sin or covetousness, this, this greedy desire, this this, this 
this desire, insatiable desire for more and more and, and different and different kinds of sexual experiences. I think that's what he's saying here. Now look at chapter 4, verse 19 to show you that I think that's the way that he is using this. You remember in chapter 4, 19, he's saying this is who you were. Uh, this is what the Gentiles were like and you don't need to walk that way anymore. But he lists out the way that they, that they lived before Christ. So chapter 4, verse 19, he says, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. There's a word for, for sex and for uh, the, the abuse of, of sex. And so for sensuality, notice this though, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. They are greedy. That's the same word, covetous, to practice every kind of impurity. That's the same word in our text again. So impurity, and covetousness is, is talking about this insatiable desire, which is exactly what I've, I've, I've been saying here. It, when, when you give yourself to sin, to sin in general, but when you give yourself to sexual sin, it takes you further and further. You're not satisfied with this, so you've got to have something new, something a little more twisted, something a little more perverse to, to, to feed that desire, to fulfill that desire. And Paul is saying that should not be you as the church. Thirdly, this morning, we see that sexual immorality should not even be a matter of our conversation. Again, I think the idea of sexuality is the one that's running through all of these commands. And so back in chapter five in our text, in verse four, he says, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. So there shouldn't be any filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking. Now that could be just crude joking of various kinds, right? But in this context with, with what Paul is dealing with here, I think he's talking about this kind of joking and, and, and filthiness in our conversation that is specifically in the area of sexuality. We know that that is a, a reality. This prohibition against vulgar speech coming as it does on the heels of the discussion of sexual immorality, I think, us, I think helps us define the kind of talk that is filthy, foolish, and crude. You know, one of the things that happens when we begin to joke about sin is that in, in a weird way, even though we're just joking about it, it, it gets us to the place where we're a little more comfortable with it, right? All you have to do is look at the pattern in our society and in our culture to know that that's true, right? I mean, 30, 40 years ago, there were things in the conscious uh, uh, the consciousness of our, our society that was just wrong. Like nobody could imagine that. But, but what happened was the first thing that, that people just said, no, well, this is going to be right now. This is okay. No, no, it begins with just softening up like a, like a fighter who's boxing and he comes and he just begins to work and soften up the fighter by, by throwing some body blows, right? That, that's what Satan has done. That's what the world has done. And so they just come in. Let's, let's just give a little bit of innuendo. Let's just joke about it a little bit. Let's just cut up. Let's, let's kind of make light about this issue. And once you do that, then you get a, you get a, an environment, you get a culture that is kind of comfortable with the reality of thinking about these things. And, and then that opens the door for the conversation. Well, these really aren't so bad, are they? And, and you've already gotten people softened up to the idea. But Paul says, listen, this should not even be named among you. You, you should not be talking about these things. 
Let, let, let there be no filthiness, no crude talking, no, no foolishness coming out of your mouth. Crude and filthy conversation has a way of defiling our mind that makes us uh, more susceptible to crude behavior. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. And that's what happens when we begin to use filthiness in our conversation, crude joking. Nothing is pure to us anymore. Have you ever been around anybody who jokes about these things? And whatever happens to them, there's some sexual innuendo in that. Like there's some hidden meaning and, and everything is a joke about that, right? And Paul's saying that should not be the case. Don't defile your mind in that way. Not only should you not be involved in these behaviors, it shouldn't even be a part of your conversation. Fourthly, this morning, we see that sexual immorality doesn't fit with our new identity. It does not fit with our new identity. John Piper, in his uh, text on this, pointed out, and I think rightly so, uh, that Paul doesn't simply prohibit this, but he gives us a rationale. Why should you not be involved in these things? Why should you not even be talking about these things uh, in a joking or a careless way? And I think if we're if we're not careful here, we can miss his rationale. Do you, do you see it? Look at verse number three. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. In verse number four, it says, uh, let, let there be no filthiness nor foolish talk nor crude joking which are out of place. These things are out of place. Why are they out of place in the church? Why is this not fitting for us? What is it that's different about us? We know it's not out of place in the world, right? This kind of sexual, sinful behavior, sexual immorality, that's not out of place in the world. Like that's, if you want to be at home in the world, you can involve yourself and talk about those things because it's totally at home in the world. It's fitting with the world. What is it about us that is different that this, this is something that's not fitting and that shouldn't even be named among us. Why? Well, there's a change of identity, isn't there? Look again at verse number three. Should not, it must not even be named among you. Why? That little phrase, as is proper among saints. That word saints means sanctified ones. It means holy ones. In other words, there's something that's different about you. God has changed you. And, and we don't have to go very far to remember that, Right? God has changed you. He's transferred you from this kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. He's given you a new life. Your identity has changed. You are a holy one of God. And so it is not fitting for you. So he doesn't just say, that's bad, don't do it. He says, that doesn't fit with your identity. It's not who you are. And so you need to be different. Remember, God, and in the first part of chapter 5, God has made us his children and as beloved children, we're to be imitators of God. And what Vance preached about uh, a couple of weeks ago, the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. The Holy Spirit of God dwells within you. And then back in, in chapter four, you have been, as we saw, to the school of Christ. You've been trained in a new way of living. You've put off the old self and you've put on Jesus Christ. All of those things help us understand I've got a new identity and these, this kind of behavior is just out of bounds. It doesn't fit with my identity as an, an, a one who's new in Christ. 
Fifthly, I think it's I think it's fifthly. Sexual immorality should be combated with thanksgiving. It should be combated with thanksgiving. Look at this. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be purity. That's not what he says, is it? Let there be thanksgiving. That's odd, isn't it? Why would he say, let there be thanksgiving? Like, okay, I've got to really fight lust in my life. I've got to really fight my this draw to, toward pornography or this draw toward uh, fornication or sexual immorality. What is it that's going to help me fight this? Thanksgiving. Why, why Thanksgiving? The answer is because this kind of behavior, this kind of sexual immorality is symptomatic of the fact that a person does not appreciate the good thing God has given us. We want something more. We, we want something different. We're like the ungrateful children on, on Christmas and they get all of these gifts and they look, isn't there something better? Isn't there something more? Is that it? Right there. They're always just hungry for for more. And that's the way that we are. We take this good gift of God and we aren't content to just enjoy it in the parameters that God has given us. We want more. We want it. We want it more often. We want different kinds of it. We want that pleasure more and more and more. We're not thankful for what God has given us. The wicked person is the person who is never satisfied with the enjoyment of God's good gift as he has given them. He has to have more. So he twists or abuses it in order to get every ounce of pleasure out of it, no matter the consequences. As a result, pleasure is pursued relentlessly. That, that becomes the highest good. I just, I just want to have the pleasure. I just, I just want to that enjoyment, no matter what else. And so sex is perverted and it falls outside of, of God's bounds. But what God is calling us to this morning is simply to enjoy it. It's a good thing. It's very good. God said it was very good. He told us to enjoy it. He's commanded husbands and wives not to abstain from it except for a a short time to devote yourself to prayer. And, And so we are to enjoy it, but we are to enjoy it in the bounds that he has given to us. And we ought to have thankful hearts for what God has allowed us to enjoy. God invites his children to simply enjoy the gift that he has given to you. And here's the reality. Sometimes kids don't get a lot for Christmas and that's part of why there is there more. Or maybe it's not exactly the best gift that they really wanted and so they're thinking, is there something else? But the reality is when it comes to sexuality, enjoying sexuality within the the parameters and the bounds that God has given us is not some kind of second best second uh, secondhand gift. It's, it's not a second tier gift. It's not as if, man, sexual immorality is really good. That's where it's really at. That's where real enjoyment is. But you all just have to satisfy yourself with, with the bounds that God has given you for, for your sexual expression. That's not it at all. In reality, the very best gift is sex when it is enjoyed within the covenant of marriage. The person who misuses God's good gift of sexuality is the one who has made sex itself into a God. You notice this, don't you, in verse number five? He says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is greedy for more and more sex, who is covetous, he says that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He, he, He links here this this 
insatiable desire for more, covetousness, in, in this arena, talking about the greed for more and more sexual pleasure, he says that that is idolatry. The person who does that is an idolater. And you see why it is, right? Because we're taking this good gift that God has given us and we're saying, I don't want God. I don't want to worship and serve God. I don't want to submit to God's parameters and God's design for this. I want the pleasure. I want the good gift that God has given me. Forget God. I want sex, right? That's, that's the mentality. And so it becomes a God in and of itself. We become idolaters. We don't set up a, a temple and we don't, we don't put up statues or anything like that, maybe. Uh, but, but we worship this. We live for it. We, we desire, that's our chief desire, is to the enjoyment of this more so than our desire to serve God. And so this person is an idolater. We abuse the gift. They are not thankful to the true God for the gift of sex because they have uh, the gift of sex as their God. Number six. Is it number six? I've lost count. Sexual immorality keeps you from entering the kingdom of Christ. Sexual immorality keeps you from entering the kingdom of Christ. Look at number five, verse number five. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. It keeps you from entering the kingdom of Christ. Christ's kingdom is here now. When, when Christ came, he set up his kingdom. We know that one day his kingdom will fully be made known in the new heavens and the new earth, but it's present now. Christ is king, and you enter that kingdom through Belief through repentance of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you enter into the king, the kingdom of Christ. He is your king. That's why in the Gospels, we get the message right away. John the Baptist comes as the forerunner. And what is the message that John the Baptist preaches? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. A king's coming and you have been in rebellion against that king. And so in order to prepare yourself to get ready for that king, uh, what you need to do is bow your knee to him. You need to submit to that king. That's how you get ready. When a king, a conquering king is coming, what do you do? You make sure you're on the right side. And that's what, that's what John the Baptist is saying. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is, is at hand. And then Jesus says the very same words. The, the first words that Jesus utters in his public ministry is the same thing that John uh, proclaimed. Repent. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Bow your knee to the king. Well, we need to just understand this then, right? That as long as you are in open rebellion against the king, you can't enter the, his kingdom, right? You can't be a part of his kingdom while you are defiantly saying, I will not submit to the king. I, I will not do what the king commands. I will not obey the, the king. You can obey in every other way, but if you've got one area in your life where you're saying, you're not the king, sex is the king. I'm living for this. In this area, I do what I want to do, and nobody can tell me what to do. I, I'm going to pursue this, right? 
You're not in the kingdom of Christ because in order to be in the kingdom of Christ, you have to bow your knee to the king. You have to repent. You have to turn from your sin and allow him to rule and reign over you. There are so many Christians, professing Christians in our day and time. There are even pastors and there are whole denominations that are telling people you can do whatever you want to in the area of sexuality and you can still be a Christian. No, no, no. You can do what the king says to do in order to enter the kingdom of Christ. And if you defiantly raise your fist against the king and refuse to submit, I'm not talking about stumbling in sin. We all stumble in sin. We all struggle with temptation. But I'm talking about a life that is set against the authority of the king. You can't be a a part of the kingdom of Christ. And that's what he's saying here. And he's clear about it he's he's unambiguous about this matter you can be notice this in verse five you can be sure of this doesn't matter what article you read it doesn't matter what group of christians is telling you that this this new approach to sexuality is really where it's at and it's okay and it's good get with the times you can be sure of this paul says that you will not enter the kingdom of heaven finally Sexual immorality brings the wrath of God. God's judgment is coming on all of those who refuse to repent and turn to Christ. Notice what he says here. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Again, there are a lot of people in our day and in our culture in America who many of them are even professing pastors and Christians who are are peddling the idea. uh, Listen, this sexuality thing, the Bible was repressive It had views that were patriarchal and we just need to get beyond that and we need to move forward. I recently heard an interview uh, or read an article of of a woman who was a pastor and and said, look, pornography is is okay. It's a it's a, a it's an okay expression of our sexuality. And so we can just embrace it. Her one caveat was it needs to be ethically sourced. By that, she means that the people who are producing it aren't forced or coerced in any kind of uh, harm, harmful or damaging way. But as long as it's ethically sourced pornography, it's, it's fine. Just enjoy it and embrace it. It's sexuality. It's, it's good. Paul says, no, let no one deceive you with empty words. Those are empty, vain words. On the day of judgment, when the wrath of God comes, on, on our sexual immorality and on our sin, those words will sound so foolish and so trivial. Don't be deceived by them right now. Don't allow your desire to engage in sexual immorality to, to give you a listening ear to people who are telling you what you already want to hear. The wrath of God is coming on, on all those who are sexually immoral. Well, let me close this morning and, and just say this. Is, is there any hope? For those of us who are guilty of sexual immorality, I don't think there's anybody here who would stand up. Maybe, maybe you're a Pharisee and I didn't know about it, but I don't think there's anybody here that would say, yes, I've, I've lived a life of complete purity in the area of sexuality, never struggled with lust, never desired another man's wife, never, never looked at pornography, never struggled in any of these ways. Obviously, I think we are all guilty of sexual immorality, especially when you consider Christ's words in in the Sermon on the Mount, that even to look at a woman with lust in your heart, if you've done that, you've already broken the spirit of the command not to commit 
adultery. And so when we, when we raise that standard and we realize how high that standard is, I think all of us have to say, I have fallen short. What is the, the hope? Well, the hope is this. You must be washed from your sin. You must be washed from your sin. Notice the words here that are used. Words like impure and impurity. And in verse number four, filthiness. It's a picture that, that sin and sexual sin in particular makes you dirty. It defiles you. It makes you unclean. All sin does that. But, but sexual sin, oftentimes in the Bible, those kind of words are used. What we need to understand is that in the gospel, there, there is a hope that is held out that we may be cleansed from our sin. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Same same statement of warning. If, if you're unrighteous, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Don't be deceived again. A similar theme. Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, that's our same word, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But notice what he says here, and you know that I've cited this before, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. Something has changed. Something has occurred. What is that? He says this, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. You've been cleansed from that impurity. In Christ, our, our guilt is gone, our sin is paid for, and we are washed. We are cleansed from all of our sin. This morning, you should come, if you've never come to Christ in that way, if you have never come in repentance and in faith, you should come to Christ this morning and be washed from your sin. Believer, if you have been struggling in this area, you need to live out your new identity. God has made you new. Christ has made you new. And you don't need to get back out in the muck and the mire of your sin. You need to walk in the purity that God has given you. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we pray that you would help us at Union Baptist Church to be light in this area. God, our, our world is, is a world of darkness, especially in the area of sexuality. And it's getting darker all the time. But we remember the words of our Savior who said that we are a light. We are the light of the world. Lord, help us not to hide our light under a basket. Help us, Lord. We, we don't want to seem arrogant or self-righteous, but we do want to be righteous. We want to be holy. We want to be imitators. We don't want to... Uh, we, we don't want to... Uh, grieve the Holy Spirit. We want to live in light of what Christ has taught us. We want to live what he, the way he has taught us to live. So help us at Union Baptist Church to live this out. I pray, Lord, that as this text says, that sexual immorality would not even be named among the saints who are here. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.